Hey now, welcome to the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and today we are talking about taking your career to the next level, finding out what your mission and purpose is, and dedicating yourself 100% to that mission, to that purpose. My guest today is Dr. Cherie Prentice, and she's gonna help us understand what your personal mission is and help us understand how dedicating yourself to your personal mission can be a huge advantage. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Cherie to the Inside BS Show. Dr. Cherie, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. Dave, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Oh, I appreciate that so much. So Dr. Cherie, give us your background. Tell us you know, you're, you're a medical doctor. Tell people your background and why you do what you do now. All right. Well, I'm a physician. I've wanted to be a doctor ever since I was two years old. I have been a physician for nearly 30 years now. Uh, I initially started off in neurology, kind of switched over to occupational and environmental medicine. Uh, and I was in practice for about 16 years for clinical practice, had a beautiful career. I mean, ranging from medical director over three facilities to being medical director over 22 different facilities uh, and medical director, program medical director for the largest healthcare system in Illinois. Uh, and I did that for many, many years, loved it. Um, until October 1st, 2008, when I found a mass uh, in my right breast and it was, it was cancer. And so now having been a physician who had given the diagnosis to other patients, I now was on the other side of the table receiving that diagnosis. And I'll admit it uh, 100%, it threw me for a loop. Even after being on a personal journey with several colleagues and friends, being their go-to person to go to all of their doctor's appointments with them and help them on their journey, I thought that that, was, that would be the end of my connection with this disease, meaning either I was given the diagnosis or I was helping someone else. Now being in those shoes myself, uh, it threw me. But Having gone on the journey with other individuals, I had a ton of resources right at my fingertips. So the moment that I found the lesion, I went quickly in getting diagnosed and getting treated. So after surgery, where they removed half my right breast, uh, 16 lymph nodes, three of which were positive for cancer. So 15 rounds of chemo, 33 treatments of radiation. I got done with my treatment, but unfortunately about a year later, lymphedema set in, which is permanent. Um, severe swelling of my right arm, hand, and fingers. And so now I became disabled from performing the clinical functions of my job. So after an entire lifetime of training and, and studying and practicing as a physician, I had to completely reinvent myself. Uh, and it was funny to get to have all of that education behind you and then have a moment in life where you had to figure out, well, what else am I going to do with my life? Many people felt that, well, certainly you had a number of options, but when your main focus had been on this one goal and then that's completely stripped from you in an instant, what do you do? And so Dave, I realized one thing that I did have that I'm sure your audience can appreciate is that I have a big mouth. And I found that by sharing my story, which was so real and so pertinent at the moment, other individuals were, were able to see themselves somehow in my story and was able to envision themselves coming out 
of their despondent place because I went through, you know, treatment with breast cancer. I was recently divorced. My mom died while I was going through chemo. I was taking care of my dad now and then having to completely reinvent myself. It was a lot of nuances to that story. And so I said that I would share my story with whoever wanted to listen and I would do my best to bring an end to this disease. And that was the only goal that I had. But subsequently, now fast forward 14 years later as a 14 year now breast cancer survivor, uh, I have now served as the national spokesperson with Susan G. Coleman. I was their first national health ambassador for their health equity program. I have blossomed my own healthcare consulting business where I consult individually with patients that want a review of their medical records, trying to figure out what should be done differently or where they should go down a different path. I also majorly though consult with major Fortune 500 and, and 100 companies on multicultural um, marketing, cultural intelligence, emotional intelligence, uh, physician leadership, women entrepreneurship. So I, I do my healthcare consulting, but I also became a professional speaker. And when I say professional speaker, I mean a certified speaking professional, uh, a designated a designation that's only given to about less than 600 individuals in the world. Uh, and it's the highest designation awarded by the National Speakers Association. So all of that to say, I went from being a, a practicing uh, clinical physician, loving her job, to now having to reinvent myself. And now I'm the president and CEO of my own healthcare consulting business and a professional speaker speaking throughout the U.S. and the world. And now, once again, it's time for the Sandrowski Business Minute is our friend, John Alfonsi. So, John, what is a hedge fund? Good question, Dave. So, a hedge fund is an alternative investment vehicle, typically structured as a partnership, but it manages, it's an actively managed vehicle, uh, publicly traded stocks, but unlike a mutual fund, it's not restricted to a particular trading or investment strategy. So they can short sell, they can go long, they can invest in privates. Generally, the idea is it's going to beat the market or have less risk if it's a diversified fund of funds. But they're typically only in available to high net worth individuals, accredited investors. Um, there's limitations on liquidity on distribution. So if you need liquid assets, unlike a mutual fund, it's not something that you can sell and get your cash in three days. Uh, typically, there's restrictions on when you can request distributions or partial liquidations. But the idea is it's a privately managed vehicle that's going to provide superior returns, albeit at a typically higher cost than other publicly traded alternatives. So, John, what does Sandrowski Corporate Advisors do with hedge funds? Well, we've provided tax consulting and compliance services for hedge funds, but we deal a lot with hedge fund investors. So part of the due diligence of scoping out whether or not a particular hedge fund is a good investment or meets the criteria of the particular investor. Um, so we're Specialists, we're specialists in partnership taxation, so we understand those rules and make sure that however the allocation scheme works, the carry that goes to the uh, hedge fund manager all makes sense for the investor. If someone out there who's listening or watching has a question about a hedge fund investment or they have a question about the valuation of their business, which is going to be acquired by a hedge fund, how can they get in touch with you, John? 
You can contact us at our toll-free number, 866-717-1607, or contact me via email at jta at sensel, C-E-N-D-S-E-L.com. All right, John, thank you for today's Sandrowski Business Minute. Remember, folks, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they're a CPA firm with a different perspective. Wonderful. Well, I um, congratulations and uh, 14 times five more years of survival for you. So um, I'm very happy. I, you know, I got chills as I was hearing your story. I'm thrilled that you've got 14 years behind you and may you have five times more 14 years. I don't know what that is, but hopefully it's a lot. Um, You know, I I wish you (laughs) nothing but the best. I think, you know, this one of the services you can probably provide and I'm I'm curious on your opinion about this because uh, you know, I I think a service you could provide would be helping physicians, other physicians understand what it's like to be a patient, right? Now, I don't know. I've worked with some physicians over the years. I don't know how open they would be to that feedback. But I know that if you were to speak in front of groups of physicians and it sunk into maybe 1% of them, it would be a big help. Because here's the thing, and I, I want to hear your opinion on this. As a physician, you have to remain somewhat emotionally detached because not every day is a day when you're giving out good news. Like you said, right? Sometimes you're giving out bad news and you know, you can't, you, you, can't ha- you can't take that burden on yourself as a physician with every patient you have to deliver bad news to. So you got to remain emotionally detached. The challenge that I have as a patient, right, is when that emotional detachment comes into play, like just in the initial, in the initial onboarding of the patient or in explaining to the patient the, uh, the test or the procedure that they're going to go through. If you took two minutes as a physician to say, listen, patients have told me that this test is extremely invasive, but the most invasive part is right at the beginning. And then after a while, you know, you're going to feel more and more comfortable. I will listen to you. And if you're concerned at any point, we can stop the procedure and you can tell me what you're feeling. And if it's not normal, we'll make an adjustment. That conversation, which takes 30 seconds, makes a world of difference to a patient. But what happens? In the medical system today, physicians get what? Like six minutes with each patient, maybe, right? Because they got five rooms, all of them are full, and those rooms got to keep turning. So there's just, they, 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 there's just not between remaining emotionally distant and making sure that they're as efficient as possible, that connection is missing. So I would love for you, if you had the opportunity to share your experience as a patient with physicians so that maybe some empathy could creep in just at the part where they're explaining to people what these big machines are and, you know, why the back of the gown has to be open, right? Like, I mean, really, can we talk about that? Why does the back of the gown, why does that, why does my ass have to hang out? I don't understand. You know, you're checking my shoulder. Anyway, I I digress. Look, there's a physician calling me now to complain. Um, Seriously, is that something that, you know, is that an area where you think you could lend your expertise? Dave, it's so funny that you asked that question because that is one of the major areas where I have lent my expertise. I actually speak 
two physicians, and I say physician leaders because back in the day when I was a physician, um, practicing as a physician, we were just considered physicians, and then there's nurses, and everyone had their place. And then there was the CEO and the CFO, and and individuals referred to the C-suite party as the the executives or the leaders if you will and so i've always felt that there was a disconnect because i'm like wait a minute even in a hospital or a hospital system or in the clinic you have a physician that is there treating patients without that physician there is no revenue there's no volume there's no care for the community so i actually advocated that physicians are leaders and they need to represent and understand the role that they play as leaders within the institution. And so as such, now reframing that when you walk into that facility, you're not just there seeing patients, but the nurses are answering to you, the MAs are answering to you, the CNAs, and they are looking up to you, how you're handling your work-life balance, how you are engaging with them. Do you even know their children? Do you know if your nurse even has two kids or how did the surgery go? Are you engaging with them? And so I actually have created like a training course, if you will, or a workshop for physician leadership. And two of the things that I cover are emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence. Without those two, I believe, physicians or any form of healthcare practitioner, does the patient and the community that they serve a disservice? People are not machines and we are not on some type of assembly line where, okay, the internist comes in and checks off that medication, sends you along to the endocrinologist who now gives you your insulin and now a movie from the endocrinologist now to the GI doc to get your colon. We're not on an assembly line. We are people. And so if, if you as a physician got into this business because you are altruistic and you truly care about delivering better health outcomes, what better way than to take that 30 seconds, that 60 seconds to one, one, better engage with your patient and two, let them know, just settle down, speak in regular speak, not medical speak. Talk in terms that the patient can understand. And like you stated, walk them through the process. It doesn't have to be extended, but you're lending just by saying, listen, I know that this is very difficult and I can understand that you may be afraid or concerned, but let me tell you, even though it's invasive, we have dot, the dot, the dot, the dot in place. Just letting a patient know that you're, you're not some person sitting up on some pedestal dictating what should happen to me or even through me without becoming involved. So that's that emotional intelligence part, letting a patient understand that I identify with you. I am empathetic. Even if I haven't walked exactly in your shoes, I am empathetic because I can appreciate what this entails. And then the cultural intelligence part is not is understanding that that emotional intelligence that you apply to one patient may not necessarily be applicable to the next. And so in order to, to really be better balanced, you need to understand culturally who your patients are and where they come from. For example, black women and Hispanic women are on the pretty much the same uh, timeline or the um, being in depth or in tune with their spiritual spirituality. 
um, you will find that you know about 87% of black women, about 63 or 67% of Hispanic women attend some form of, of a spiritual service or church service throughout the week. And therefore, because they are spiritually in tune, those individuals have a tendency to take a little bit longer getting into the doctor because they put their health and well-being in the hands of God, right? And so now understanding that and appreciating that, you're now, I now respond to them differently. One, I'm appreciating that they may be coming to me a little bit later in the diagnosis because they've waited to come in. So now I, I, I have to appreciate that. I can't point a finger and why didn't you get in sooner and understand that culturally this is where they come from. But then also understanding that cultural um, bias, if you will, because of their spirituality, I can feel free in saying to them, you know, I'll, I'll be praying. Would you like to have a word of prayer? Um, or, or mentioning God uh, to an individual that has already expressed that they are faith-based. That also now breaks down walls and lets patients understand and feel that they are cared for, that the best possible health outcomes that are available to them will be made available to them, and that my doctor understands that I'm a whole person. My spirituality, my children, my husband, or the lack thereof, they understand me. So yeah, I, 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 I've taken that on as a mission, if you will, to train as many physician leaders as I possibly can because that was missing when I went to med school. I was actually encouraged by attendings to not um, say sorry to a patient, to not cry with a patient, to remain very stoic with no expression on your face. And I, I just... I could never fall into that trap. I probably was the physician that took on more of the emotional uh, strain with me when I went home, but I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing because I, I made it through the other side and those patients and their family members and the other dominoes that those individuals were connected to, I made a difference by going that extra mile, by being empathetic and by being real by crying with them sometimes, by praying with them at others. Yeah, I, I so appreciate that. And you know, there's something in there that you mentioned that I wanna make sure we don't miss because I, um, my, so my, my personal life has been dedicated to raising my children to appreciate diversity. My, uh, my, my wife was born in New Jersey. I was born in New York, but that's not the diversity I'm talking about. My wife's background, yeah. If you, if you know people from Jersey, I mean, anyway. Uh, my wife's background is she's half Ecuadorian, half Cuban. And we raised our kids, uh, in a, we ra we're raising our kids in a bilingual house. Our kids go to a bilingual school. And as, as open and as, you know, uh, embracing of the, you know, the, the patchwork of human differences that there are, uh, as embracing as we are, when COVID-19 hit, Dr. Shuri, I didn't realize the overwhelming hesitance of particularly the African-American community related to uh, vaccines that, that were relatively new because of the Tuskegee experiment, because of, because of everything else, I, you know, I, I didn't know. And I was, I was surprised at first. And when a couple of my friends shared with me, listen, we've heard, you know, a couple of my friends who are African-American shared with me, we heard these stories growing up that, you know, they test this stuff on black people. 
And when they first said that to me, I was like, I was taken aback and I was like, you know, this is at the time, this is 2020. This is, you know, really? And, you know, then I thought to myself, all right, if somebody had told me a story consistently over the years while I was growing up, what would it take to change that embedded belief? Oh, it would take a lot. It certainly wouldn't be from somebody on TV, right? It would be from my personal physician or a pharmacist that I had been going to see for 20 years, right? And that's when it started to make sense to me. I'm wondering, Dr. Shuri, how many doctors were in the same, of the same mindset that I was, right? Good people, well-intentioned people that have, you know, patients of color that came in and went, no, I'm not getting that vaccine. And then the doctor just throwing up their hands, you know, without taking the time to go, okay, share your concerns with me. And then they explain their concerns. And then the doctor does what he can do, what she can do to try to begin the process, understanding that you're not going to undo 30 years or 45 years of, you know, uh, cultural indoctrination in an office visit of six minutes, but to begin the process of getting them to ask the right questions, right? I mean, to me, that's, that's the biggest failing and the biggest thing we should learn from this entire COVID vaccine situation is that you're not going to teach somebody to accept science when they've spent, they've had their whole life, they've been indoctrinated into one way of thinking. What you need to do is get them to ask the right questions of people they trust, right? So your point about the cultural issues, I think that's such a big deal. What, what other scenarios, I mean, that's just the example that I know as, you know, as a white guy having seen this and having friends who experienced it, what other issues are out there that we don't know about that this applies to? Well, the, the issue that you brought up is, is a huge one because one of the things that happens is because of, and that was, that was it's so pertinent that you brought it up because, you know, I, I shared how black women and Hispanic women are, are very similar when it comes to their spiritual beliefs. Oh, but when you deal with a, a black woman versus a Hispanic woman, when it comes to their healthcare practitioners and their physicians, very, very different. A black woman has mistrust of her HCP, questioning the motive and the treatment. Whereas an Hispanic woman looks at her HCP as revered, admired, and respected. And so again, as a physician, if I were to treat a black woman the same way I treated a Hispanic woman, I'm doing the black woman a disservice because now when she doesn't do what I've recommended, I've labeled her as non-compliant. Mm. And it's not that she's intentionally being non-compliant. She is scared and does not understand. So when you take a, take a, a system where you overload it with volume, you make the physicians on a you know a FIFA service basis where they got a function on their RVUs, where their checks or their bonuses are connected, where they have to live by patient satisfaction score. So now they're trying to satisfy a patient within a six to ten minute visit, but they have to meet their fifty patients a day quota, uh, and then now I have patients coming in of all types of diverse backgrounds. And, and, and now you're asking me, although I was never trained in medical school, 
to, to demonstrate this cultural intelligence and understand the cultural differences between Asian people and Hispanic people and black people and white people, not having that full understanding, and I'm supposed to treat everybody the same, yet I'm purporting that I am giving individualized patient-centered care. How can you be doing that if everyone is treated the same? And so you you your example it, it no there i don't know any physician that has, has stated let's say during these past two and a half years that has taken the time when a black patient has come in skittish of getting the vaccine and they've taken the time to say you know what i appreciate that it's been hundreds of years between slavery all of the incorrect and and unprecedented surgeries and 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 everything that was taken i realized that but we now have safeguards in place we have safeguards in place that a physician is going to take the time to try to convince a patient to do that if if there is a physician out there that has that is listening to this that has done it please <laughs> contact i or dave please we want to get you on a roll and let you do it again but i personally don't know of one instead what we do is just say you know what mm -mm, it's, you're not yeah, it's, black it's people are not they're not right, going to get back personal, to it's a per, we we just they get they dismiss it but it's a personal decision i respect your personal decision you know good luck and that's that's the end Correct. of the, that's the end of the visit my my counsel to them and i I have a couple of friends who are physicians is always just, you know, give them, give them one or two things to think about. Give them one or two questions to ask somebody they respect. Have them go to the pharmacy and ask this question. Have them go to their primary care physician or their OBGYN and ask this question. Just give them something to start the process. Uh, they're never going to overcome, you know, their, an entire lifetime of, uh, of hesitance in an office visit. But if you can get the process started, maybe the next person that talks to them can convince them or maybe three people down the road can convince them. It would be better, like here we are now, we're doing this interview in the spring of 2022 and somebody who didn't get the vaccine in, in 2021, I'd be okay with them getting it now because it's exactly. still as protective. So if it took them a year and a half to come to that realization, good on them for coming to the realization in a year and a half. I'd be okay if they got it, if they came to the realization next year. That's fine. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And Dave, how about have more physicians who look and sound like you advocating in a place and space where you can see and hear it? Right. Because I can assure you, you're gonna have more black patients who will be more in tune to me encouraging them to get right. the vaccine, which I have gotten, and I've gotten the second booster as well. Right. Right. So I am four doses in, as, as opposed to trying to have a, a white physician, a white male physician trying to convince a black female patient that yes, you got to get it. And then there's no, no empathy, no emotional connection at all, except for telling her that she needs to get it. Have more physicians who look and sound right. like you advocating, demonstrating, being that role model, correct? Yep. And then at least being willing to, like you stated, start the conversation, ask the questions. And sometimes it's simple, you know, I would tell my own family members, I still have family members that have not gotten the vaccine. And it's so funny because when they called and, and 
ask the questions or or say what they won't do or what have you. And then when I express to them, you know, I've gotten the vaccine. If, if they tell me that another booster is necessary, you know, I'm going to go ahead and get that booster too. You have relied on me. This is what I say to them. You have relied on me for almost three decades now for all of your medical advice and you know you you come to me after you've seen one two three other physicians and then you you'll come to me and you'll take my advice on on all those other things but now you somehow believe that i will put myself in danger by taking a vaccine that i'm now advocating that you should also get and and so so when you when you kind of flip the story around Sometimes maybe I don't need to give you more medical information. Maybe I just need to give you a real life example of me being the individual that got the vaccine and then me being a real life example saying, well, do you really think that when you walk into Walgreens or Walmart uh, that they switch vials and they give white people one thing and black people the other. Do you think when you go to the mass I mean, vaccination I, I'm, sites that they that they can switch them out real quick? I'm laughing because so. no, I'm laughing because I I had somebody tell me that exact thing. Like they that there's two there's there's two storage bins. There's the storage bin for these folks and there's the storage bin for those folks and they reach into one for me and another one for you. People there are people, Dr. Shree, there are people who think that. And they think <sighs> that from years of being told something. So, you know, and this is, um, you know, it's a huge, huge lesson for for anybody who's trying to persuade anyone at any time. I My work, what I do as my day job is I help people with business development. I help people sell things, right? This is a classic example of the wrong way to try and persuade somebody to do something. You know, you can't sit in front of somebody and wag your finger and go, you know, it's science. I'm telling you, you got to listen to science. Nobody's going to buy that. Nobody is going to buy that. The way people buy things is by making an emotional connection, being empathetic, understanding, and then realizing that, there are some long-held beliefs that are going to take more time to break through. I mean, it just, it's, it's just, it's unfortunate, but it, it, it just, it is the way it is. Now, another thing that you mentioned there that I think is, um, is incredibly important is folks are being more and more selective these days about how they pick the physicians that they go to. And the examples that I give to, to people all the time is, um, so uh, my wife and I had, we had our children, I, I had my, my, my wife is 11 years younger than me. So, I, so when I say we had our children later in life, I'm talking about myself, right? So my, okay. son, my son was born when I was 40. And that, you know, gave me a whole lifetime of experience, which has served me well, most of the time in raising my kids. And one of the things that we've always made a decision to do is we always book an appointment and pay for an appointment outside of insurance with any new doctor we're going to just to interview the doctor. And if there's a doctor that says we don't accept appointments for that and we and we we're happy to pay to you know we're happy to pay for you know 15 minutes of the doctor's time we're not asking them to do it for free if there's a doctor that says no we don't do appointments for that well they're never going to be our doctor. So and we've done this with every doctor for our kids for ourselves that sort of thing. And so that's how we picked our kid's pediatrician, who's wonderful. And then my son was diagnosed when he was very young with a, you know, a, an unusual condition that's relatively new called eosinophilic esophagitis. And it's not a life-threatening thing, but it's, it affects 
his esophagus, his body makes certain cells which create acid reflux and the acid eats away at his esophagus. So he had to be on a restrictive diet and he had to see a specialist. Our, our pediatrician recommended a specific doctor. We live in Miami, in the Miami area. And the pediatrician said it like this. She said, and his name is Dr. William Munoz, fantastic doctor. If you have a, if you have a need for a pediatric uh, gastroenterologist, this is the guy. So the pediatrician says to us, you're going to go to Dr. Munoz for a nine o'clock appointment, and he's not going to see you until 1030, but you'll be thrilled that you waited that long. And I was like, when she said that, I was like, I was like, I, I don't understand. And she's like, you, you will just trust me, plan on being there, bring your computer, plan on being there an hour and a half, bring the kids something to play. So, and I'm, you know, I'm already aggravated, right? I'm already, I'm, I'm already like, oh my God. So we got to make a nine o'clock appointment to get seen at 1030. We won't get out of there till noon. My whole day is shot. We do it. Dr. Munoz took 45 minutes in the exam room with us every time we went to see him. He went over every line of the test results, explained in every detail to us. When I was traveling and I couldn't make an appointment, he welcomed my wife to FaceTime me so that I could be part of the appointment with him. He called after a new treatment was, uh, was instituted. He always called a day or two later to follow up to see how my son was doing on the new treatment. When my son was finally diagnosed as, like when my son went through puberty, this went away. It just, and he, because of the treatments that we were doing and because of the changes in his body, he sent us a card congratulating us on doing a great job to get through this. So, you know, I can't tell you how valuable it is. And now I'm, you know, this show will be maybe listened to if we're lucky by, you know, 25,000 people. Everybody knows Dr. William Munoz in Miami now. If you have a problem with a, a GI issue with your kid, this is the guy to go see. And I can't tell enough people how great this guy is. I don't know, Dr. Cherie, why that sort of thing, that doesn't resonate with physicians. Because we, we, sh we switched insurances during the time Dr. Munoz was, was treating my son. And for, for like a three-month window there, we had to pay out of pocket. And it wasn't cheap. It was, you know, he's a specialist. It's expensive. And we did. We paid out of pocket because he's that good. You know, he's that good, right? Why don't more physicians understand that being that way, being, being human, is good for business? What's the what's the what's the disconnect there? You know, I think I'm torn because I I don't believe that with the majority of them that they don't understand that. I think what has happened more is that medicine has evolved from being that person in the community that had the medical expertise that was in the community and therefore treated the community. And so back in the olden days, this was, everybody had their, you know, the butcher, they had the doctor, they had a, and everybody fed and, and did what was in their expertise. And so they were an extended family. What has happened with medicine, it has become the business of medicine. And so unfortunately, at the very beginning, as that business model was changing, physicians stayed in the physician role and they saw patients. While on the other hand, people without the medical school knowledge without the, the bedside manner uh, knowledge was dictating 
pay schedules and fee schedules and building in for the for-profit and then for the not-for-profit and building in and driving in money. And then you had the insurance providers and everything became centered around the business and business, i.e. money aspect until the people aspect fell away. Because there was too much focus here. Now that physicians are now back into, you know, you have more organizations saying that we're a physician-led organization. Because now they appreciate, whoa, wait a minute. This doesn't feel right or set right with the community because we feel more like commodity or, or customers as opposed to consumers of health care. Which I should be able to experience freely. And because me in the community, I'm working, so I have insurance, I'm feeding into the community. Therefore, when I get ill, I want the community to now look after my needs because I'm feeding into the community, right? And so now I believe that physicians still have it, especially those in my age group, we still have it. But if you've gotten caught up where you're now an employee of the hospital, where you're private practice was bought out and you're now an employee, you are on employee, you're on the employee game. And the employee game says that you have these goals you have to meet, these targets you have to meet, and so you meet them. And without meeting them, uh, goodbye, because now you can not only be replaced with another physician, but now you could be replaced with a nurse practitioner. And so now it's just a mad dash of, okay, but I have a family I have to take care of. I, I have medical school um, loans and, and college loans that I have to pay back. I got to be about the business because the, the architect is about his business. The roofer is about his business. The waste management guy that takes out the garbage is about his business. I have to be about the business. And so there is a, uh, I think it's only a handful of the, the rare physicians like Dr. Munoz that says, you know, and I don't know if he's employed by the hospital, however, he's made it his practice. He is comfortable enough in, in saying, I would rather take on feeding my patients and their, their families, their, their parents. I, I would rather do that than to, to reach a certain number in my salary or in my bonus. But it takes a conscious effort and every physician and every institution can't do that. There are some institutions that will slap your hand and will kindly say, you can go away. And like I stated, they can replace you with someone that is less expensive, like a nurse practitioner. So now you have all of these physician extenders that are coming in that are now being able to operate emergency rooms on their own, a PA or, or an NP. And so now you have physicians that say, okay, well, I want to spend the time with the patients. I want to explain to them, but if I do, I'm going to cut back on my RVUs. And now the institution is telling me that if I don't do this, they can easily fill my position with someone else. It's like, okay, you're torn. And so for, for doctors like Dr. Munoz and for physicians like myself, it's a conscious effort and you have to be willing to accept the consequences because some of them are not good. Some of them are not good, but you got to go back to the reason why you got into this in the first place. To me, being a physician, since I wanted to be it since I was two years old, it was, it was a part of me. It was, it was just who I was meant to be. It was part of my purpose. And so to tell me that I have to walk in my purpose the way you want me to, then it's not my purpose anymore. It's yours. So I can't be a part of that, right? You I can't be a part of that. You walk your purpose my way. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That doesn't fit. So it takes a strong-minded individual. Yeah. And sometimes those physicians have to have other revenue sources to be able to fall back on because the one that you're counting on may fall by the wayside with you taking a stand. 
But what Dr. Munoz is doing, he's taking a stand. And the love for his patients and the love his patients have for him is worth that hour and a half wait. Because I know when I get in there, I'm going to have his undivided that's attention. It. That's why we wait. Undivided yeah, that's attention. Why, that's, Absolutely. That's why we wait. Is why you wait. Is why when there was a period of time when you were paying out of pocket, you'd be willing to pay out yeah. of pocket. A lot of physicians, again, like I stated, either my age are at a place where they're looking to retire, especially coming out of this great resignation. I don't want to ruffle the waters. And then the newbies that are coming in, Dave, man, man, they're not being taught this, what we're talking now. It really is uh, that business of medicine. And so I'm concerned that when it's time for you and I to need a physician on a regular basis, I don't know the, the the caliber of individuals that will be there oh, that's going to that. give us that 45 <laughs> minutes. I'm serious. Because with the Great Resonation, we have physicians that are leaving, going to do completely different things that are not even medicine. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that the people that are listening, if you are a medical student, you're a resident, you are an attending, I hope that it's something that has settled with you that says, you know what, whoa. Why did I do this in the first place? This was not just a job. I went to college. I went to med school. I invested in residency. I did a fellowship. I did this to make an impact, to save lives, to better lives, to decrease morbidity, to decrease mortality, and make a difference. So now I'm going to do what it takes to make that happen. All right. So we're talking with Dr. Cherie. You can reach out to her at 847-602-2277, 847-602-2277. All right, Dr. Cherie, I'm going to ask you to give me three things people should take away from our time together today. I'll give you a minute to think about that because I need to remind people that were brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. For over 35 years, Sandrowski has provided expert client service to folks all over the United States. Now, their target audience is people who have privately held businesses or people who have uh, families that want to invest their money. So if you're a family of wealth and you're sick and tired of people pitching you on different types of financial advice and you have a significant amount of assets, maybe you want to create a family office, Sandrowski can help you. Today, I want to talk to you about Sandrowski's tax advisory service. So if you have a privately held business and you're thinking about selling your business down the road, the best time to call Sandrowski would have been when you started your business, but you didn't know about them. You just heard about them today. So the second best time to call them is right now. And here's the reason why. There are some strategies for when you sell your business that require a significant amount of pre-work. For example, there is a qualified small business stock exemption that's available to businesses that do less than $50 million a year in annual revenue. This is an area that Sandrowski specializes in. It's sophisticated, but the big four accounting firms, they don't have the time or the inclination to focus on this. So if you have a business and you do five, 10, 25, 35, $40 million in revenue, give Sandrowski a call because if you're going to sell that business anytime five years from now or more, they will organize you properly so you can take advantage of this exemption in the tax code. Now you're saying, hey Dave, listen, I'm gonna sell my business someday, but how much could this possibly save me? You know, a couple hundred bucks. I'm gonna pay Sandrowski more than that to do this. Well, let me give you an example. Harry Sandrowski, the, the uh, managing shareholder of Sandrowski Corporate Advisors was sitting with me two weeks ago. And he said, Dave, a gentleman I work with just sold his business for $49 million and we were able to save him $10 million in capital gains taxes. That's real money because we reorganized his firm six years ago. 
Now that's real money, folks. And it doesn't cost you anything to make a phone call to Sandrowski to give them the particulars of your business and they'll let you know if they can help you or not. And what you're going to pay them, the return on investment when you sell your business is astronomical. Give them a call today, 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is a CPA firm with a different perspective. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. You're a professional. You want a business development guide? I've got it for you. I'm going to give it to you for free. Go to revenueroadmapguide.com. That's a website, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info. You can download my business development guide for free. It's the same guide I use with my clients. You can customize it for your business. It's my gift to you for listening and for watching the show. We're speaking today with Dr. Cherie Prentice. You can reach out to her at 847-602-2277. If you need a keynote speaker for your next conference, Dr. Cherie, you can see she's dynamic. You can see she brings the energy. You can see there's no shortage of opinion. This is exactly what your audience needs. Give her a call today, 847-602-2277. All right, Dr. Cherie, what are the three things we should take away from our time together? Three things you should take away. One, like I did, recognize your talent. When things switch up and you need to reinvent yourself, take a step back, understand what your talent is and cultivate that talent. Number two, in whatever field you are in, take the time to invest in understanding, learning and incorporating emotional and cultural intelligence into your practice, into your business, into your profession, into your life. And then third, when you are working with your customers, your consumers, your patients, whomever, recognize that whatever information you may give them or whatever road that you may be directing them down or whatever piece of advice you may be giving them if they choose not to accept it recognize that it may be due to some hidden fears some unaddressed uh concerns or just lack of knowledge so be prepared to give them a takeaway give the be prepared to give them something more to noodle on in order to get them to make the right decision moving forward and all the people said amen dr sheree i love it you are the guest of the week thank you so much for joining us today you are wonderful <laughs> Thank you, Dave. This was an absolute pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. We will absolutely do it again. That'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show, folks. Give Dr. Sheree a call, 847-602-2277. Dr. Sheree, it's been a pleasure. Folks, we'll see you back here again tomorrow. Until then, my name is Dave Lorenzo, and here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.